morning, if you'll take a look at page 6 in your bulletin, that's where we'll be here for the next few moments. We don't usually, in, in our church, make a, a big deal of the traditional church calendar, uh, at least not often throughout the year, but when the season of Advent comes around, it's just too good of an opportunity. It's too good of an opportunity for us to miss, to refresh our devotion, so to speak, to renew our wonder, even as John referred to earlier, even to deepen our awe at the redemptive work of our God throughout history. And I hope that the season of Advent will be that for you. Again this year, I hope it's been that way for you in the past. I hope it will be this year for sure. And I'll echo John to to encourage you on Wednesdays to come and join us for Vespers here at 6.30 in the theater. It's a good chance for us all to come together and set our eyes again in the middle of the week on the anticipation of the coming of the arrival of the Messiah, which is the thing that we celebrate here in the Advent season. So I'd encourage you to come and join us for that. That coming, that arrival is anticipated, not just in the decades prior to the birth of Christ, but really it's suggested and hinted at from the very beginning, from the very beginning of Scripture. And that's what I'd like for us to see in these coming weeks together as we gather during Advent, to see the Word of God coming as it has from the very beginning. It's what I think we see through God's words about His Word right here at the very beginning, the opening pages of Scripture. And that's what we'll look at, these first three chapters of Genesis, according to the, the highlighted six sections that are there on page 6. And so if you'll follow along with me as I read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Now skipping down to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, or you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam... And for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that as we gather together as your people here this morning around your word, that you would give us your spirit, enable us, Father, to to see and to hear and to believe, to be persuaded of your good news in Jesus We confess that if you don't, if you don't give us your spirit, if you don't make it possible that we would see what you're doing, then we will not see it. 
We will not believe it. We will not understand it. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that. We know that you will. You're faithful always to your people when you gather them together, for you've called us to do this. And so we give you honor and glory and thanks for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Christmas is about. That's really all that Christmas is about, isn't it? You could end the conversation right there. That's really all that needs to be said. There's nothing else that really even matters in this holiday season. There's a lot in this holiday season, but there's nothing else that really matters at all, is there? The lights and the candy canes, the eggnog and the gingerbread, the roast beast and the who pudding, the pleasant music and the credit card bills that inevitably follow it all, all of that stuff is just paraphernalia, right? It's just paraphernalia. I mean, it's fun and good stuff, but it's just paraphernalia for a celebration. But what are you celebrating? What are we celebrating in the season of Advent at Christmas as that day comes? What are we celebrating? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Early this week, I was scouring the bookshelves in my office looking for a particular book. It's just a small little paperback book, and it's a book that comes to my mind every beginning of December, every beginning of Advent, because it's so fitting to this particular season. And I couldn't find the book. I, don't, I still don't know where it is. I, I must have loaned it out to someone, and someone has my book. But a little later in the week, John came to me with his copy of that book, not knowing I had even been looking for it, and said, you know, I think you might want to take a look at this for what you plan to talk about it. It will be helpful. It's a good devotional element to the season of Advent. And he handed it to me. It was so helpful. It's a 1,600-year-old letter written by a man named Athanasius. The book is called On the Incarnation. And so you can see why it's helpful at the the season of Advent when we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. It's a 1,600-year-old letter. Athanasius is an old guy. He was, was born around the year 300 A.D. in Egypt. And he became one of the most influential theologians of the early days of the church in regard to our understanding Jesus as Scripture portrays him to be both Son of Man and Son of God. Athanasius wrote this letter to his friend, Macarius. And and this friend evidently was a, a young believer or maybe a seeker trying to understand this gospel in the early days of the church. And Athanasius, a great understander of this gospel, wrote him this letter, which we've now entitled, On the Incarnation. And this is how he began his letter. We will begin with the creation of the world and with God its maker. Have you ever started that way in a letter? You know it's going to be a long letter, right? And it is. I won't read it all to you. He says, For the first fact that you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been brought about by the same Word who made that creation in the beginning. There is therefore no inconsistency between creation and salvation, 
For the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, effecting the salvation of the world through the same Word who made it in the beginning. A lot of theological ideas there, right? And he's leading into a whole lot more theological ideas, but the gist of it is this. The words of God created all things. And the word of God became man to redeem all things. They are one and the same. Now, there is, of course, a a double meaning going on here. You have, on the one hand, the words of God, little w, the words of God, the spoken grammar, the, the, the breath of God, literally, coming out of his mouth, communicating to his people at different times and different places throughout Scripture as we read about it, the words of God. But on the other hand, you have the Word of God, capital W. The Word of God, the, the Logos, as the Apostle John referred to it in the first chapter of his gospel, as you heard moments ago, the Logos, the Word of God, John was borrowing from a, a Greek philosophical term to, to merge God's truth with the world's grasping after truth. The logos was a term the Greek philosophers used for a number of different things, and it's far too complicated for me to begin to grasp, much less explain it to you. But in essence, it really was used to explain the logic behind the argument, so to speak, the, the foundation of all Order and purpose was the Logos, and John was claiming that philosophical term for the, for the truth of what God has been doing throughout all of the ages. And he merges those things together because God's redemptive story carries these two things, God's words and God's word, together throughout the ages of his redemptive story. The beginning that we read about here in Genesis, of course, is not really the beginning of all things, at least not the beginning of the things as we know them. It's not the beginning of God, but only the beginning of the universe as we know it. And the purpose of this beginning, as we read it in Genesis, is not to establish scientific proofs. And it is not to provide data for biological text, biology textbooks. It's, that's not the purpose of these chapters of Genesis as We read them, so don't be confused by them. Rather, their purpose is to convey some things about God, including this. His word and his words are very significant. Think about the intimacy of words, if you will, for a moment. When when two people who love and care for each other very much argue with each other, what is very often their gut reaction, their first response on how to deal with their argument. What is it? It's not healthy. I'm not encouraging it. I'm just saying it's often one of our first reactions to an argument. What do we do? I'm not speaking to you anymore. I'm going to withhold my words from you because, well, we don't say this, but we acknowledge it. Our words are intimate. Our words are sharing ourselves with each other. And if we're physically present, but not verbally present, it's almost as if we don't even acknowledge each other exists because our words are so intimate. God doesn't do those sorts of things. Here we see that he begins with words, he continues with words, 
And even when the crown of his creation has turned its back on him, he comes with more words still because God loves his people. And through the ages, he has pursued them with the intimacy of words until in the dark of night, in a small town called Bethlehem, his word arrived in the flesh. But that coming was no afterthought. It was really just characteristic of what God had been doing from the very beginning. And that beginning shows us some important elements of his intimate word. It shows us its power. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's all you need to know that the Bible tells you that God is all-powerful, that he's omnipotent, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. And for us to even say that, to use that word is an understatement, isn't it? It doesn't even begin to do justice to what those first words tell us about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You read a few more verses down to verse 16 of that chapter and you come across one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. It's a fascinating and absurdly ridiculous understatement. God made the sun and the moon, you read in verse 16. He also made the stars. That's what it says. We can't even count them. And he made them in five words. That's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, that's the power of God at at work. Of course, his power extends not just over the marvels of creation, but also over the acts of men. The Proverbs tell us, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Why does the proverb, in its wisdom, tell us that it's the king that God directs? Because the king is the most powerful person on earth, and if God directs the heart of the king, he directs your heart and mine as well. If there's anything in the Christmas season that should cause you to marvel, let it be the power of your God because it is awesome. This poetic account of the historical event of creation, though, sets us on a course to anticipate that power sweeping through history, and it does it with a a very simple repetition. And God said, I only gave you one of them here, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be sky, and it was so. And God said, let there be dry land, and it was so. And God said, let there be plants and trees, and it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and it was so. And God said, let there be creatures in the waters, sky, and land, and it was so. And God said. God's words are prominent from the very beginning. As the writer to the Hebrews would much later acknowledge, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. By by the word of his power, he called all things out of nothing. And that's just beyond our comprehension. I mean, can you even begin to fathom the idea that God, by the, the word of his power, simply called all things into existence where nothing had existed before? How can that be? It's really beyond our comprehension. And therefore, for many people, 
the faith required to believe it seems beyond reach. But even scientists have often been perplexed by the facts that, that surround the matter. Vesto Melvin Slifer is a name that you maybe have not heard before. If you have, I would marvel at your knowledge of history. Vesto Melvin Slifer was an astronomer in the year 1913, just over 100 years ago, in the Lowell Observatory in Arizona. And in his studies and observations through the the observatory there in Arizona, he realized through his use of spectroscopy, I'm not even sure what that is, but he apparently knew, through his use of spectroscopy, he realized and recognized as he examined the universe that the universe is expanding outward. That's what he recognized as he observed the universe at this observatory in Arizona. And just a few years later, Edwin Hubble, whose name maybe you do know, used Slifer's information to formulate a law for the expanding universe. And when he did that, an enormous implication came to light. If the universe is expanding outwards ever so, what does that mean? It means at some point in the past, the universe began to expand from somewhere in the middle of it all, which is perhaps hard enough for us to even imagine. The universe began to expand. There was a point of beginning somewhere back there. A big bang, for lack of better terms. That's really kind of all we can come up with to explain it, isn't it? Because we lack the words to even begin to explain it. But a big bang occurred somewhere in the past. And if that's the case, then what was there before that? Was there something there? Or was there nothing there? And if there was something there, then where did that something come from? And if there was nothing there before that big bang, then how did the big bang happen out of nothing? It's kind of the mystery, isn't it? The scriptures of Advent tell us the answer. And God said. And the power of God's word then becomes a thunderous theme throughout the rest of the history of redemption. So if God's word is so powerful as to do these sorts of things, then what does it do in your own life? Because it does do in your own life, right? So often we expect for it to come like a lightning bolt. You know, we want for God's power, for His Word to come and to fix us now. Just fix me now, Lord, and and make these things right. We want it to come like a lightning bolt, but often it really just comes more like a river. We were flying this past week from North Carolina. We'd gone there for Thanksgiving and flying home, looking out the window, I noticed a scene that, that you've, I'm sure, seen before, too, from you know, 25,000 feet in the air, you can look down and see the landscape and and a river that we were crossing, a major river. I don't think it was the Mississippi, but some other tributary of it was snaking its way through the landscape there below. And it was interesting to see the path of the river as it carved its way through the dirt of the land. You could see its curves and its changes and, and places where the river had been and now is no more because it's changed course and taken a different path. And there was even one place where an island had formed in the middle of the river because it had curved a U-turn around and even come back on itself before dividing off to the right to another direction and almost as though it were working against itself. 
This river is, is powerful to change the landscape, although it's almost imperceptible. From the ground level, you can't really even see it. But from 25,000 feet, it has the power to change the shape of the landscape. From the daily level of your common life, the power of God is almost imperceptible because of its slow and constant pressure in its exposure of itself to you. The psalmist puts it this way, Lead me in the path of your commandments, O Lord. Incline my heart slowly to your testimonies. For your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It says, though I can only see the next steps ahead of me, that's all I can see. But that's what you, Lord, by the power of this river of your word, give to me to reshape my own life. His word comes with power. It also comes with truth. Now the serpent, chapter 3, there was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Snakes. They're crafty, aren't they? They're very crafty creatures. But this is really no simple snake here, is it? You know that, I think. Years ago, when our kids were, were much smaller than they are now, it was almost a decade ago, I think, I can remember driving them to school one day, and one of them chimed up from the back seat. It was quiet until this moment on the way to school, and the, the question was, Dad, did the serpent really talk? It was 7.45 in the morning. I wasn't ready for that question when it came, but it came clearly out of the back seat of the car. Dad, did the serpent really talk? I'm not sure what put that thought in the mind of this child at that moment, but it it struck me as an amazing theological question, and it really is. Ordinary serpents don't speak, but this one did because this is no ordinary serpent, right? This is Satan himself, the deceiver, the fallen angel, who's seeking to take God's place as what? As the establisher of truth. That's what the serpent is doing here in this scene. And so he begins to cast doubt to the woman. Did God actually say, you may not eat of any tree in the garden? You hear what he does there, right? I mean, he, he takes the words and he turns them, he twists them ever so slightly but significantly to begin to deceive, to cast doubt. Because what had God actually said back in chapter 2? Do you remember what God had actually said to the man and to the woman? He said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. He had set them free. It was a place of great beauty. It was pleasing to the eye, we read there. But it was also a place of great freedom. God had had set them loose and said, go and enjoy this amazing place that I have given you. You may eat of every tree in this garden, every, every one of them. But Satan held out the bait of deception and she began to nibble. Because that's the nature of deception, right? To, to cast God as the great restrictor rather than the great redeemer. He's the great restrictor, Satan wants us to think. Did God actually say that you can never enjoy yourself? Did God actually say that you can never just do what you want? Did God ever actually say 
that you have to go to church on Christmas morning? I mean, you see how the, the little subtleties begin to sneak into our own world. And the deception becomes so, so obvious. It's alive and well in our day, too. No, he had only placed one restriction, you know. What he had told them. He, he said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. Enjoy all the trees of this garden. It's all yours. But the one tree I reserve for myself. The one restriction. What was this tree? What was special about this one tree? Well, it was an apple tree, we all know, right? That's what we assume. And, and I don't know why. Who, who named the Adam's apple? I don't. What, why did they call it that anyway? I don't get that. It was, we don't know that it was an apple tree. We don't even know what it was exactly besides a fruit tree. There's, there's really only one fruit that's specifically mentioned in these parts of Scripture, and that's the fig tree. And that's only because fig trees, fig bushes, have enormous leaves, which are good for covering people, and that's been done before. But we don't know exactly what it was. This tree is not described any differently than any other tree in the garden, except that God has said something about it. The woman seems to think that its location matters. She, she answers the serpent saying, he told us not to eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. She seems to think that its location matters, but it wasn't the tree's position in the garden relative to the other trees that mattered. It was the tree's relationship to God's word that mattered. Because God had said something about it. Only God determines the distinction between good and evil. No one else does that. Now, I don't know that there was anything special about that tree, except for how God had restricted it with his word. Why would he do that? Why would he restrict them so? Why would he say to them, but only that tree, that one tree... Reserve it for me, and if you eat from it, you will surely die. Why would God put some restriction like that on his people? Why would he even do that? Well, because I think, evidently, he wanted for them to take him for his word. To, to trust him simply because of who he is. There wasn't some poison in that tree that was going to kill them. It was simply that it was God's word that had told them. God's words matter because they're God's words. It's as simple as that. And his word, with a capital W, is the logic behind the argument. It's the the foundation of all order and of all purpose. In other words, his word is truth. It's the, the fountain of truth. It is the only source of truth from which all truth comes, and no truth comes from anywhere but from his word. And in that moment, he offered his image bearers the opportunity, even the responsibility, to trust him for who he is. But Satan has one last weapon of doubt here. He says to the woman, you will not surely die. What's he doing? He's, he's suggesting that God's bark is worse than his bite right? You know, surely the consequences aren't going to be that big a deal, woman. You can eat from that tree and you'll, you're not going to die. Surely that won't happen. It's not going to be that big of a matter. It won't really matter if you lie and cheat and steal. It just, it just won't matter. Don't worry about what's true. 
And so convinced, she took from the tree and she ate from it and she gave some to her husband who was there with her. And ever since, we've had a conflicted relationship with the truth. We all have. Just yesterday, I was at a middle school basketball game with a few of you parents watching our sons play basketball, and the, the games didn't quite go our way yesterday, and, and that caused, I think, all parents to recognize, I certainly did, ourselves straining against the officials who, on the basketball court, are the source of all truth. And at every moment in the game, I found myself channeling my own father, remembering 35 years ago, hearing my own dad from the stands as I tried to play basketball, calling out to the officials frequently because he saw things differently. You know, that was traveling, ref. How could you not see that? Wait, no, that was not a foul. If that wasn't a foul, then that wasn't a foul. And I don't know why you're called ref. You need to get some glasses. And I could begin to feel that coming out of myself, you know, Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we all have a zeal for the truth as we perceive it to be. We have this conflicted relationship with the truth because of the fall. We we love it insofar as it's advantageous to us. But only God's word is truth. And so it comes not only with truth, but also with grace. This scene that we're reading here in chapter 3 of Genesis, it's, it's really the most devastating crime scene that ever happened, isn't it? It is a crime that happened here. It's a, a crime that brought not just death to one person, but it's the crime that brought death to all people. And so this is the most devastating crime scene that there ever was. And what does God do in response to this crime scene? He shows grace. Now, grace is is one of those theological words that we, as Christians, bat around a lot, and we toss it around and use it lightly often. And and we want to put the simple definition to it that grace is unmerited favor. And it is. That's a a good definition. It's a good two-word definition you can always remember, but you always have to think in terms of being able to elaborate on what is that exactly. What is grace, after all? It's not just unmerited favor. It is God doing good for us, even though we deserve the opposite. And that's what God does here. He does it, for one, by establishing enmity. There's a little irony in that. Enmity is hostility. How is it that God is showing grace by establishing hostility? Well, He does it by His words to the serpents. Because you've done this, misled and Deceived, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity. God established enmity between the two of them, and it was at that moment the most gracious thing that he could have possibly done. He had to put it there. Now this woman would, we would see later in Scripture, as we saw last year, come to represent what? Do you remember from Revelation chapter 12? The church. She's the woman giving birth to the child. She's the the woman bearing the Redeemer Himself, God the Word becoming flesh. She is the woman, the church. And God is establishing enmity, hostility between the church 
and its deceiving enemy. And that enmity would be a great saving grace for the people of the church because without it, we would simply be inclined towards the serpent ourselves. But not only does he establish enmity for our good, he produces clothing as well. This is maybe the most gracious part of the passage. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. You, you wonder, was, was Adam what we would call a Christian? Did he believe God? Absolutely he did because of the way he called his wife. You're the mother of all the living, even though they had just been sentenced to death because of their crime. She's the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now this brings us to a theological truth that that I think we in this church unashamedly toss out to you all the time. I hope that we do, and I hope that you hear this with some regularity from our mouths, because you should. It's one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture that God made garments of skin for them and clothed them. Now, obviously, he took away their fig leaves and he gave them something more substantial. The man and the woman, we're told in chapter 2, were naked and they were unashamed. They were, I'm sure, literally without clothing. They were in the glory of their flawless human bodies and nothing more, and yet they were without shame They had nothing to be embarrassed about. They were not just naked physically. They were exposed. Every part of themselves was visible to God who was there. And they were not ashamed. But now after this event, they're naked and they know it. And they're ashamed. And God knows it because they're guilty. And so what does he do? He clothed them. It's one of the most beautiful parts of Scripture to see God's Word coming because He didn't just simply put skin on their body. As the rest of Scripture shows us, He clothed them with His Word. That's what we read in the New Testament as as the Apostle Paul explains to, to, to the Romans that now a righteousness from God is made known that is by faith to all who believe. And further, he explains even more clearly to the Corinthian church. What does he say? God made Jesus to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who had no sin became sin. He took on our shame so that we could take on his clothing, his word, his very self. Because He is the Word, God in all of His grace clothes us with His Word. And we think of that Christmas child as we anticipate the coming in the manger of the the child. We think of the the sweet little baby born in the manger as, as artistic renderings so often show. But He is so much more than just a sweet little child. He is the eternal Word of God. Athanasius wrote that long letter to his friend. And it's a long letter. It's a short little booklet, but it's a long letter. And at the end, he concluded it. He said this, Here then, my friend Macarius, is our offering to you, a brief statement of the faith of Christ. I think brief meant a different thing back in that day. 
He says, this will give you a beginning and you must go on to prove its truth by studying the scriptures. They were written and inspired by God. From them you will learn also of his second coming. When he shall come not in lowliness, but in glory. No longer in humiliation, but in majesty. No longer to suffer, but to bestow on us all the fruit of his cross. The resurrection and incorruptibility. The words of God have been coming throughout the ages. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is here before us on the tables of communion this morning as we gather at these tables. That word is here and that word will come again in glory and in majesty. And this is the coming that we celebrate in Advent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit.